Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this, the latest Institute for Government event at Labour Party conference, How Should We Govern in the Digital Age, supported by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the IFG, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this morning, uh, and thank you for braving the bridge over the terrifying drop, or as we've nicknamed it, Sterling. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Institute for Government is the UK's leading independent think tank, working to make government more effective. We've had a busy few years. Um, we conduct research, hold events like this one, and do learning and development. Lots of think tanks think about the what of particular policy areas. We're interested in the how government goes about it. And for those of you who don't know our supporter today, um, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation is an independent social change organisation which is working to solve UK poverty through research, policy, collaboration with private, public and voluntary sectors and people with lived experience of poverty and practical solutions. JRF's aim is to inspire action and change that will create a prosperous UK without poverty. A little bit of housekeeping before we get underway. This event is on the record and there will be an audio recording available afterwards. For those of you on social media, we are tweeting from at IFG events and using hashtag IFGLab22 as well as hashtag Lab22. Uh, this is one of 15 events the IFG is holding at Labour Conference. Uh, you can find details of all of the others on the IFG website or in the flyer that you might be able to find around the room. So, how should we govern in the digital age? Technology is profoundly reconfiguring our society, how we relate to one another, how we relate to businesses and organisations, and how we relate to government, which brings huge opportunities, but also great risks, including embedding existing inequalities and creating new ones. Politicians, policymakers, and the public still often have limited understanding of technology digital data, but government must start to grasp the opportunities and grapple with the challenges. So, how do we take digital policy out of a box and make sure that all policy areas are thinking about it? How do we give it the attention it needs? What kind of government, what kind of state do we need in the digital age? And what should Labour be doing about all of this as well? Well, lucky, luckily we've got a stellar panel to consider those incredibly difficult large questions. Uh, first, we'll be hearing from James Plunkett, Executive Director at Citizens Advice, where he leads the digital technology and policy teams. Uh, James is leading a JRF, JRF project on social justice in the digital age. You can read the first of his essays on that project, The Invidious Hand online uh, and I think there are others coming on care and inequality uh, in the new shape of inequality. Uh, he's also the author of End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Can Fix It and has spent a decade at the heart of UK public policy at number 10, the Resolution Foundation and elsewhere. Then we'll hear from Chi Onwura MP, Member of Parliament for Newcastle-upon-Tyne Central since 2010. Chi is currently the Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Innovation and she's been on the front bench constantly, I think, since late 2010 in various roles across uh, the business, uh, digital culture, media and sport and cabinet office teams uh, with a very, very strong interest in digital. Uh, before Parliament, she worked in hardware and software development, trained as an engineer and worked for Ofcom. After Chi, we'll hear from Jenny Tennyson. Uh, Jenny is the chief executive and founder of Connected by Data, uh, a campaign to put community at the centre of data narratives, practice and policy. And full disclosure, I'm currently working with Jenny on a campaign around the new data protection and digital information bill. Uh, Jenny also sits on the Global Partnership for AI Data Governance Working Group, is an adjunct professor at the University of Southampton Web Science Institute, is an associate researcher at the Bennett Institute in Cambridge, and also a Shuttleworth Foundation fellow. She was previously chief executive at the Open Data Institute where she worked for nine years. And last but not least, we'll hear from Heaton Shah. Uh, Heaton is the chief executive at the British Academy, which is the UK's National Academy for Humanities and the Social Sciences. He's also a visiting professor at the Policy Institute at King's College London, uh, the vice chair of the Ada Lovelace Institute, which makes AI and data work for everyone and the public good, is on the boards of the Legal Education Foundation and Our World in Data, uh, and was also the Chief Executive of the Royal Statistical Society. Uh, the format, uh, I'm going to ask each of our fantastic panellists to speak for up to five minutes. Uh, we'll have a bit of discussion on the panel, and then we'll go out to you, the audience, for the last 20 minutes or so. When we do that, remember we are on the record, please do wait for the microphone to come to you, and do tell us who you are. We'll be aiming to wrap up at 11.35, 11.40 at the latest. So, without further ado, how should we govern in the digital age? James. Great, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> um, 
Okay, good. Um, I'll, I'll give a bit of framing up front and I'll jump straight in because we don't have very long. It's a very big topic, as, as you said. Um, the point I want to open with, which is a slightly counterintuitive point, is that this isn't really about technology, or it's not first and foremost about technology, or it's not about technologies themselves, if that makes sense. So it's very easy, I think, in um, these kind of discussions to get sort of carried away with AI or with specific examples of uh, technology or its application. Really, I think the reason this is a significant discussion is that what is happening um, in a technological revolution like the one we're living through now is much more profound than the application of individual technologies. So the way I think about this and the way I write about this in my book, uh, End State, and in the way we're exploring this in the JRF project, um, is that what is emerging is essentially uh, a new practice of production, for want of a better phrase. Um, so new ways of generating value, uh, fundamentally different business models, uh, and fundamentally different ways of living and working uh, to the way that we lived and worked uh, in the 20th century. Uh, that is, needless to say, a big deal. That's a profound uh, set of shifts. Um, uh, in essence, what's happening is that one type of economy is being replaced uh, by another type of economy that is working uh, to a different logic. So what does that look like and how does that kind of change play out? Uh, we know some, something about that because it has happened before. Um, I write a lot uh, in my work about the analogy of the Industrial Revolution, uh, which is much talked about. I think it is an apt analogy to what we are uh, now living through. And uh, the distinctive thing about the Industrial Revolution and the reason it is rightly thought of as a revolution um, is precisely that point, that the, the economy and society that emerged from the 19th century was qualitatively different to the one that, that we had when we went into that. Uh, that very profound process of change. So it wasn't just uh, bigger or faster or richer or less equal. Uh, it works to a fundamentally different uh, logic to the economy we had prior to uh, the Industrial Revolution. So this idea that things sort of come to work differently in a technological revolution is uh, absolutely central to the work we're doing on this project uh, with JRF. And the kind of more, the more relevant point for us, I think, today is that the kind of government that you need is therefore also qualitatively different to the kind of government you needed before uh, the technological revolution um, started to take hold. So you have to fundamentally reconfigure the way in which you govern uh, society and the economy as a result of the changes that are now underway. I write about this obviously a lot in my book, End State, uh, where I say that we didn't in the end cope with the industrial revolution by tweaking the policy instruments, if you like, that we had before. So we didn't you know, expand the guilds or kind of increase funding for the turnpikes or the Knights of the Garter. We built a different state that was uh, unimaginable, actually, to the people that, um, that would have uh, thought about governing and, and government um, before that, those changes took hold. In essence, what emerged, uh, without getting into this too deeply, was the social democratic settlement that we built in the, in the kind of late 19th and early 20th centuries. And that, in essence, was how we came to govern, if you like, industrial uh, capitalism. Uh, and the reason that is very relevant today um, is that I think, in my view, we're in the very early stages of this new revolution, the digital revolution, as it's often referred to. Uh, and one thing that often happens in, in the early stages of a revolution like this um, is that things start to feel uh, rather messy and sort of slightly out of control. Um, and so it's very interesting, actually, I think, when you look back to the mid, particularly the mid-19th century, so from around 1830 to around 1870, uh, and read into what it felt like to live in those decades. Um, it was a period in which there was this profound sense in which government had sort of lost its grip of the situation, and there was a sense of uh, new social problems piling up, that the state, the government, was looking on, um, looking at, thinking, we don't know how to respond to these problems, and it felt fundamentally ill-equipped as the state to respond to these mounting social problems. And so there was this sense in those decades in the mid-19th century of insecurity, of, sort of rampant exploitation, as I say, of problems mounting up so they didn't have the tools to solve, people feeling very exposed to those new problems, some people frankly making a killing and making off with very large fortunes while other people uh, struggled, so this sense of um, rampant inequality and of course populism and a lot of anger at the state of things. Uh, and that feels, I would argue, uh, pretty familiar, um, given the world we are now living in. Um, and actually what led me to write my book, End State, was that sense of quite eerie familiarity, actually, if you read 
sort of letters, diary entries, and so on from the 1850s, 1860s, you sort of feel like you like you feel like you want to go to the pub with these people and sort of <laughs> have a have a whinge about government. I mean, and it is really odd how similar the vibe I think felt then to how it feels now. So, kind of the fundamental takeaway I think, which kind of maybe we can unpack more in the discussion, is you cannot respond to the changes we're living through now with incrementalism. So, you know, if we think we can get through this thing by tweaking the taper rates in universal credit or, um, you know, uh, handing out iPads to nurses or sort of these kind of somewhat kind of superficial interventions, um, we're not going to get through this thing. It's deeper than that. So I've sort of slightly dodged the question. I'm conscious, so let me, let me finish with a couple of specifics. So um, uh, what kind of changes might we see as a result of um, in, in this kind of new form of state that needs to emerge? So a couple we're exploring in this project. So one is economic regulation. So it seems to me now very clear that markets work differently in the digital age to the way they worked before. Uh, loads of evidence, growing evidence around this, around things like uh, monopoly, winner takes all effects, uh, manipulation, dark nudges in consumer markets. And regulators really are not set up to handle this stuff. They're kind of looking at these emergent challenges and thinking, you know, we don't have the tools. We don't have the tools to respond to this. So we'll need new ways of thinking about economic regulation that are different to the ways we thought about it before. And the only other example I'll mention is, is the labour market, which is, um, I think, a real set of uh, very live challenges around the way in which work is changing as a result of the digital revolution. We've had, I think, a very um, sort of lively public argument about things like Uberization, as it's sometimes called, and the question of, um, you know, are people who work for Uber self-employed, are they employed? We've had a sort of quite big bun fight around that kind of question of classification. Again, it seems to me a really good example of the fact that we can't respond incrementally to this, these, this set of challenges. It seems to me obvious that Uber drivers, are, they're neither self-employed nor employed. They're, it's a new kind of thing, right, that's emerged. And yet, at the moment, the main thing we're trying to do is sort of put this new thing back into some old boxes. Uh, so again, it seems to me we need to go deeper than that and think in some, some quite fundamental ways about new ways of thinking about and regulating and classifying uh, work. Final point I always promise to end on is optimism, because uh, it does feel gloomy at the moment. There's a lot of doom scrolling, um, and it's hard to resist. I do think the big lesson when you zoom out and look at history is that we can get through transitions like this. Um, and in essence, the economy that is emerging is more powerful than the one we had before. The question is, how do you govern it? How do you harness it? How do you steer that power? So there's, there's sort of great potential, if you like, and as much upside as there is downside, if not more upside. Um, but we've got to sort of get to grips with this thing, and that takes uh, real radicalism. So it's an optimistic story if we can get a grip on it, is the takeaway. Thank you very much, James. Uh, Chi? Um, thanks very much, and uh, thanks very much to the um, Institute and to the, the Roundtree Foundation for uh, organising this and for inviting me to speak at it. It's a fantastic subject. It's a really important subject. It's the one you can't do justice to in the time that you have, and I have to leave at 11.15, as I think you know, so I have less time than, um, than, for, than the panel. And, and I just want to say that um, um, I agree profoundly and disagree profoundly with what James just said, so that's going to make for an in, in interesting discussion, because I think the answer to the question, um, how should we govern in the digital age, is actually, um, <laughs> it's the same, it is the same answer as we've had before the digital age, it is with labour values, indeed, with a labour government. And I think that analogy of the Industrial Revolution is really interesting, there are, I think there are, many, there are things in which way, ways it's not different, it's different, and one of the fundamental ways in which it's different is that the digital revolution did not take place in a democracy. Half the people could not vote, and, it, and the working class could not vote either by the time of the first industrial revolution. And the answer to that was the labour movement. The answer to making the first industrial revolution more equal, and the, the, all, the, all the things that you raised, was the labour movement, and ultimately the the uh, the labour uh, a labour government. Not as many as we should have had, and hopefully um, <laughs> one that will be coming again into into years time. But so, but the reason, uh, but I do agree profoundly with what you um, it was what you said about the the profound difference that digital makes. I mean, as as um, Gavin, uh, you know, so alluded to, I was a, worked as a chartered engineer 
for 20 years in tech before, in private and public sector, before entering Parliament. I have found it deeply disturbing to follow the trajectory of tech from boring but useful, which is, you know, I used to dread being asked what I did at parties, <laughs> engineer, you know, too exciting, but incredibly exploitative, you know, and that is, this is this, and, I've, that's be, and I've also been dismayed from the day of my election, it's the proudest day of my life, but dismayed by the lack of robust scrutiny of the role of, and implications of technology in our lives and the lack of an appropriate forward-looking 21st century legislative framework. And I've called the absence of government, government action in this space deeply and almost criminally negligent. And the Labour, last Labour government was different. The 2003 Communications Act, which was a consequence of a wide-ranging discussions with many stakeholders led by Lord Putnam, was forward-looking and brought into, uh, brought into, off, brought into you know, gave birth to Ofcom, which was about a forward-looking <coughs> framework, a 10-year forward-looking framework for what was then called uh, convergent and was, you know, some, you know, people didn't know how it happened and how the impact it would have on markets because again you're right in that markets or well, markets operate as markets do but the, um, the the drivers the currency the definition of those markets has really changed and the fact that we are finally discussing actually not discussing because it's been put, uh, taken off the table but it's coming back apparently um, of, uh, the online harms bill in Parliament after 12 years and at least three technological ages since the Tories came into power you know is just um, an amazing um, absence of responsibility and accountability and has deeply, deeply harmful impact for our economy, but also for our democracy. And the fact, you know, since I entered Parliament, I and many others, you know, and I worked with, uh, with Jenny on a re review of um, digital government, actually, in 2013, uh, have been call asking, calling for much greater clarity over critical questions like, the responsibility of tech giants, who controls the data, which increasingly um, controls our lives and the safeguards that need into, to put into place. And, you know, and I am by nature an optimist and also by, I'm a tech evangelist, that's why I came, went into technology. But I found myself in a position of a bit of a Cassandra facing a government who refuses to put in place a regulatory framework that reflects the potential for harm as well as good and which critically empowers people to, uh, to, to, to benefit from the positive and progressive impact that these technologies can and should have on society. And also who recognises that technology is not something that happens to us, it is a political choice, the impact of technology. So, um, but on, on the, on the on, and, oh, going to the optimistic forward look about, I hope you've all had a chance to look at our, our industrial strategy, which Jonathan Reynolds uh, launched yesterday, when you've seen this is four central missions, delivering clean power by 2030, caring for the future, building a resilient economy, and crucially, harnessing data for the public good. And it says, sets out here that Labour will harness data for the public good by using the new capabilities in data analysis and artificial intelligence to deliver better public services and improved people's quality uh, of life. And there's a clearly, this is a case for intervention in markets which, have, which are not operating as, as, uh, as competitive markets and they are not delivering in the consumer or the citizen interests. And we can un unlock the benefits of data, but only if there's public trust in these technologies. And that's why a Labour government would stand up for the democratic privacy and security rights of the UK citizens, including by influencing uh, international standards, uh, which are so important and should not be being uh, driven by, um, you know, by governments with, uh, with authoritative, authoritarian interests. So we need a, to build the world's most competent regulatory environment for AI uh, rather than the, 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 the purely kind of um, market and economic sort of interest with the government's current reviews of both data, I think, and AI um, are looking at. And we're very well positioned, the UK, to benefit from it. We have some of the greatest AI, so technology and uh, and uh, skills, you know, in the world. Uh, and But we need to ensure that... Um, we're leading in AI ethics and safety uh, research and not only uh, solving existing difficult problems such as safeguarding children and developing cyber security but also looking at future uh, risks. 
And so to just, so, you know, AI is just one example, but I suppose I'll just to, to finish, we believe fundamentally, I believe fundamentally that these, that we can, that we can govern better um, for the public good, but we have to um, address the downside as well as the upside of technology and integrate that into the way in which we govern. Fantastic. Thanks, Chi. Uh, we'll go to Jenny next. Thank you. So I, I've been uh, asked to talk more about the people side of, of governance. Um, I think my first reflection is that when we talk about the role of people in our digital age, it tends to be one where we talk we talk about people as if they're passive, right? We're uh, cattle, I think, or puppets, or just subjects of uh, of digital technology. I think it's important to recognise that, that this passivity isn't acceptance of the current state, it is powerlessness to do anything about it. Um, so phrases like digital resignation, where people don't, uh, don't actually agree with data being used about them in the ways that they are, but they're just resigned to it, they can't see any other way forward. Or things like tenuous trust, which the CDEI talked about, um, whereby people don't, only about a third of people trust government to be using data in ways that are going to benefit them. Um, and it's a tenuous trust because when, when, uh, when these uh, uses of data hit the headlines, then we see people acting on it. We see people marching in the street around the A-levels algorithm, right, um, and, <laughs> and causing reversals. We see people opting out of data collection in the NHS, so that the um, opt-outs doubled to 5% um, as a result of that kind of... Uh, of, of it hitting the press. So there are real um, damages with uh, the kind of role that people are currently playing in, in, in um, data to reputation of the organisations that are using data, uh, the reversal costs when they need to change their minds because of that public pressure, and also just poorer data. When people opt out, we don't get representation and that means that we get poorer data and, and therefore less uh, less reliable kind of analyses over the top of it. So I think we really need to change the way in which we um, frame people's role within the, within data governance, within AI governance, to one that is more active, to one that focuses on building understanding, on building agency, and also driving legitimacy of the decisions that are made around data and the uses of data. Um, and importantly, I don't think this is something where we provide individuals with more control. We get a lot of that kind of language around um, you own your data and, and putting it back on individuals to act. Actually, what we need is a collective action around data. We need data governance that is uh, democratic in the, in the control of people, that is participatory, where the people who are affected by the use of data and use of AI get to have a say in it, that's deliberative so that we, so that we actually encourage debate around the way in which data is used rather than um, just kind of accepting it or, or also going on kind of uh, hunches about how it should be used, but also one that is powerful, that, is, that actually um, has an impact on the organisations, whether that's government, private sector, or even civil society organisations that are using people's data. Mm. Um, and I... I'm, I wasn't expecting Natalie to be here, but I wanted to talk specifically about an example, which is the Justice Data Matters um, uh, activity that, that Natalie at the Legal Education Foundation ha has been running. So as an example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Um, so if you don't know this work, it's about um, case law being made more available for uh, people to do AI over and there's some big kind of questions about whether case law can actually be used in those kinds of ways uh, big issues about sensitivity of that kind of data um, big issues about how it might affect people who are going through the court system right when they, that kind of data gets used and the the narrative is people don't care and therefore 
or, you know, we can just decide as government as a, in a kind of technocratic way. But the, the exercise that Natalie ran um, with Ipsos UK was to actually look whether they did care. And indeed, people do. They have opinions about the way that data is used in this uh, in these kinds of exercises and I encourage you to go and have a look at the report because it talks both about the kind of governance that they want to see in place and the kinds of outcomes that they want to see from the use of data um, which are generally those kind of public good outcomes that, that uh, Chi was talking about. Um, so we need to have more of this kind of powerful governance over the way that data is uh, over the way that data is used. I think that includes having strong and properly enforced individual rights, not only for us as kind of customers, but also as workers um, within these kind of tech, uh, uh, tech platforms and as providers within tech platforms. So the Uber drivers of this world, the, uh, the content creators on TikTok, the people who are selling their, their uh, little jewellery uh, through Etsy or through the Amazon marketplace, they need to have individual rights too over the use of data. Um, we need to encourage organisations to adopt this kind of collective and participatory forms of data governance in their own in their own work and we need to have more empowered collective action we need to have unions stepping forward and and advocating for data rights of their members for example but also new ways of forming these collectives that can stand up for and and, uh, and uh, have a powerful voice around um, around the use of data and AI so that's that's my my pitch we need to put communities right at the center of the way in which we think about data governance in the future Brilliant. Thanks, Jenny. And if you do want to find out more about the Justice Data Matters report, you can go to the Institute for Government website <laughs> and the 32nd edition of our Data Bytes event series where Natalie and others were talking about it. Uh, Heaton. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so I, I think one of the things about this is it's such a big topic uh, and a key question for me is how do you break down uh, what is common across a set of digital questions and what are discrete issues? So actually how is automated vehicles different from seeing your doctor uh, virtually, uh, which is different from an algorithm that optimizes bin collections, uh, which is different from misinformation online. Bundling all of these problems together is kind of, uh, on the one hand, it feels like that there's, there's something in common, but actually I think there's not that much in common and we need to sort of take quite a lot of, uh, take, take a lot of time disaggregating the issues and working through them one by one as well. So that feels really important. And, Coming from the British Academy, we're just about to launch a big new programme of work on what it means to be in a digital society, which is wider. There's been a lot of work on the data bit, and I'm going to talk quite a bit on the data bit because that's kind of my background. But I think thinking about the cultural, the historical, the philosophical aspects of all of this is really important too. I completely agree with uh, Jenny's perspective on putting people at the heart of this. So, I mean, you, from, from a British Academy perspective, we want experts involved. Uh, but I think you've got to marry that with the voice of people. And part of the reason for that is because nobody knows the boundaries and the answers on these questions. So a good example, I'm vice chair of the Ada Lovelace Institute, which, which the Academy helped us set up. We did a major piece of work on biometrics. Mm. But it, the, the interesting thing that we did, we had uh, uh, Matthew Ryder, mm. uh, QC, do a regulatory review of all the gaps for biometric technology. But at the same time, we, in parallel, held... Uh, deliberative council of 100 people that met, discussed what all of this meant for them, and then produced a report sort of bringing the two sets of perspectives together. And I think, I mean, it's really expensive to do it that way, but actually that's the way in which you need to sort of say, where do informed publics think that the red lines and the queasy bits lie? And then how do we get the regulatory experts to kind of uh, th think about that? So we should always be asking, as I think everybody has been saying, whose interests are these technologies being designed in? Because if we can design them around the right interests, then they will be positive in our lives. Jenny's already beaten me to talking about the Justice Labs work, but I mean, this is an example where, you know, court data in the UK is really weak. But we have an opportunity, we're about to see a digitisation of the courts, and if we could build in from the outset uh, that, that, that we want to capture this data, then that would be really helpful. But if we miss that boat, time will be gone. So this is all the work that Natalie's been doing at the Justice Data Lab, but, uh, and I'm on the board of the Legal Education Foundation, so supporting it there. But I, I think we don't want to miss that opportunity, 
uh, data can be a real public good. And I can see um, Anna's here from the uh, uh, Centre for Public Data. Uh, they did analysis showing that uh, forty percent, I think, of parliamentary questions couldn't be answered by the Ministry for Justice because they didn't have the data, <laughs> which is just shocking, right? I, I think turns to quite a different question: How do you govern big tech firms? This feels like a quite different set of issues, for example, and you, you need a whole day just to go through that. But uh, one example from my bit uh, in the sort of statistical world is um, we helped the Office for National Statistics pioneer new legislation called the Digital Economy Act, which allows them to access private sector data sets. If you now want to know what's happening to inflation or uh, you know, even what's on people's minds, it's the private sector that is now garnering all that data. But this is our data in the sense of collectively public data. The, the ONS actually has the right to access it. They, they can basically demand it, but they're using it very rarely, I think. And I, I think the role of official statistics is going to change from the ONS being the collector of all data, actually it needs to curate data uh, wherever that is being drawn from. And we, you know, I think we need to get a more muscular state to be able to do that. Uh, a different kind of example which I think um, James alluded to is looking at kind of agglomeration effects. Uh, you know, it's now very hard for a new Google to pop up because Google's already got all that data as it were. But competition law tends to think in terms of consumer rights and because there's no transaction costs as it were it's very hard for original the current frameworks to kind of deal with that so this is why we need lawyers and others to be thinking about new concepts uh, and the digital markets unit which was supposed to be set up still is being kicked back into the dust but that that feels to me like a, a kind of important step forward and in that sense I, I suppose i'm probably more incrementalist than james I, i've got more faith that you can because i see them as discrete sets of problems i think you could figure out a solution for each one as well as thinking about some of the bits that cut across. Um, and on the subject of uh, big tech firms, I mean, today you'll have seen TikTok is being fined, what was it, 27 million pounds for use of uh, young people's data. I mean, this is just a cost of business for them, right? I mean, if you want fines, you need massive fines, which actually, so you need to create a new incentive structure around actually privacy and fining. And then finally, just to turn to automation, uh, you know, sometimes there's this worry that robots are taking all our jobs, etc. Actually, the problem in the UK is not enough robots are taking our jobs. We have not automated nearly enough compared to other countries, which is one of the reasons why our productivity has been so weak. So I think we need to move into that space. And again, lessons from history. James has been, you know, speaking to history. When you go through that phase, then actually new jobs pop up, and uh, and that's kind of what we want. So there's obviously a transition phase, and how we can manage people through that space and that's the kind of traditional I think labour agenda in terms of skills, in terms of support, what welfare states uh, can do etc I think is really important. Uh, but how, the, the key question for me is how do you design a kind of AI automation world which is not some dystopia where you're constantly being surveyed and is highly unequal? How do we make sure that the productivity gains are distributed well and equally and that this leads to good work for everyone? And then a final danger is the seduction of black box algorithms. When we've had austerity, uh, you're seeing cutbacks across local councils, etc. Then providers come in and say, ah, well, you know, I can see you're having to cut back on your child services staff. We've got an uh, algorithm that's going to be able to help uh, tell you where to spot, uh, you know, potential child abuse, etc., etc. And there's just a worry in those very high-stakes situations, which is quite different from bin collections. So bin collections let your algorithms rip. Uh, when it comes to really high-stakes decisions, this is where we need to have <coughs> algorithms supporting humans and augmenting human capacity rather than taking it over completely. So I'll stop there, but yeah, I, I think humanities and social science perspectives from lawyers, economists, philosophers, historians will be essential to helping us navigate this new digital age. Thanks, Heaton, and thank you all, uh, all panel. Um, given that she has to leave shortly, I'm going to go straight to questions. Remember, you are on the record. Do tell us who you are, and please keep them short uh, if you want Chi to be able to answer, and I'll go to Chi first and then down the panel this way. Uh, wait for the mic to come to you. I've got a question there, a question there, and I'll come to you uh, third. So we'll, we'll take the first three questions. Thank you so much for the brilliant... Is that on? Sorry. 
We have to, we have to have uh, we have to have a tech issue at the tech event. Any competent passive user. Thank you so much, Chi. Um, it was a really brilliant presentations by the entire panel of, of experts. You mentioned the framing for labour around um, privacy and around the sort of protection, but I wondered, um, one of the issues that we've come across in our work at the left has been the failure to look at the harms that accrue to people from the use of digital and tech from an equalities perspective um, and the way in which some of the framing around privacy has actually meant that services that are being designed and rolled out by government including the court reform program have failed to take into account um, really the differential impact on people from different backgrounds we uh, we did a huge campaign trying to encourage the court service to collect protected characteristics data. It took two years longer than it should have done to get put into place. And they've just started to publish the findings from that, which have found that on the digital divorce service and digital probate, people from black and ethnic minority mm -hmm. groups get worse outcomes and are stuck in the system longer. Mm. And that's because of a failure to design it around the cases and issues that face those groups. But it mm. literally, if, if they hadn't collected the data, yes, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so how do we stop? the privacy perspective driving out these other perspectives when we're talking about how to govern digital states. Thanks, Natalie. Um, we'll go behind you quickly as well. Uh, thank you very much. Kind of two very quick questions. So one is about kind of young people and kind of digital age. So we're moving, we're talking about governing digital age, how we know so many young people have access to technology, but also so many people who don't. So how do we prepare young people to be able to live within this digital age? How do you prepare them to, with the skills they need? and prepare them to know what, what rights they've got within that kind of digital age. And the second question is kind of based around this idea that how, how can we utilise, how can government utilise digital tools to make sure we're listening to those who may not have a voice normally, so how can we listen to young people who aren't part of the electorate, how can we use kind of social media to make sure that they have a voice and able to kind of be listened to in a really kind of accessible way. Great questions, thank you, and yes. Hi, um, so my question is more about um, if we're ready for a digital age, actually. So, you know, our infrastructure and... Um, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I, I promise that wasn't me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, through the, the 2019 kind of, uh, the, the kind of campaign, we found out that there's large parts of Britain that just don't have internet access. Mm. There's loads of people that are digitally excluded. So some people that just generally don't want to use um, the internet or digital devices. So how do we make sure they're not left behind if we're going into this kind of uh, mm. digital revolution? Brilliant, thank you. Chin. Wow, there's no way I'm gonna answer those questions in two minutes if I have to go, but let me make a stab. So I think that the question um, around um, digital and um, equalities is like it's, it's a huge question um, it is actually if you um, it's one I've been <laughs> it's actually one I've been asking I was at Kemi Badenoch when she was equalities minister every month I would ask her what is she doing to look at how the disproportionate impact of digital on different uh, protected characteristics I asked exactly that question and every month it was um, the Sewell report and then you know we had the Sewell report and it was in fact, the Sewell report did actually mention um, AI, and it, as well as not not recognizing, as well as not recognizing um, structural racism, Sewell report actually had a very straight, weird thing about how um, algorithms could basically er eradicate what racism there was. And I think so. I think to answer your question, I think so I I'm very keen, and I know that. Um, um, our shadow, shadow Secretary of State for Digital, uh, Lucy Powell, so discussed with her that um, the Equalities Legislation and the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, and the fact they've taken, they are taking on board the need to to look at how you address the impact of, di of digital on equalities legislation and the impact of, of, of you know, just understanding what that is. I think. Um, um, Data protection says no is the same as a computer says no. It has become an excuse for far too many organisations who have, have, haven't spent many, many hours poring over every comma and 
and word of our digital protection legislation, it does not. Put, it does not. It does not. And, and, and those who use it, especially if they're in government and using that as an excuse. Um, we need to, and it's one of the things, and my answer to this is the same as my answer. <laughs> when I first asked, uh, first time I asked Google um, what their proportion of women they had in their uh, engineering departments, they told me they couldn't answer because of data privacy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and and it's, 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 if you... You know, if you can't, if you not, if you don't know how to use a data analysis well enough to understand what you're doing, then you shouldn't be having, you shouldn't be in the, you shouldn't be in the game. You know, so, um, so yeah, so I think it, I think it's a really important issue, and I think it, but it, it, the, 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 the barriers that are put up to it. This is something that technology can solve, and the, and the legislative framework is there to enable it. Technology can solve the question of, of analysing the data to get the impact on different uh, different groups. Um, so I think that the young people and engagement, you know, it's, it, we've, we have, um, the years of austerity have undermined our, uh, our education, our ability to educate into digital skills also. Um, and this is an answer to your question in part as well. We haven't had a digital inclusion strategy since 2014. Uh, I mean, which is, we, we haven't had any kind of target for digital inclusion since 2014. The one in 2014 was 90%, which I think we've probably, depending on how you measure it, reached. But it's like, it, that is not... That, that is not, it's such a vacuum when it comes to ensuring we have the digital skills that we need. And if you don't have the digital skills that we need, then making you know, some of the benefits, I'm speaking here as a network engineer, some of the benefits of digital are only possible if everyone is, part, is taking part of it, if everyone is, is digital, and we're not, so we can't realize those benefits. And I think there are real social benefits and participative benefits, and it's, you know, amplifying voices which are unheard rather than, right now, a lot of, um, you know, digital and social media is just amplifying the loudest voices, you know, but giving voices to those who are unheard is, is a real possibility, but we need to have a government, so again, a government which, uh, which is um, using, again, digital skills to empower people and uh, not um, trashing our um, further education, for example, which is so important here. And then, you know, on infrastructure, 2010, actually, we had our, our manifesto for 2010 had a route to universal broadband, which um, the incoming coalition Labour, uh, Lib Dem and Conservative government trashed, you know, and we're still, you know, our digital infrastructure is absolutely not where it should be, we don't have um, universal uh, decent. We don't have universal decent broadband. Never mind excellent broadband. I'm very c concerned about 5G and 6G, and um, I still can't make mobile phone calls in bits of Northumberland. That's absolutely right. It's you know. So so I suppose the answer to your question is yes. We need that infrastructure investment. One of the things that we said in. Um, you know, and our, uh, you know, our 28 billion uh, commitment to investing in uh, in a, a green economy um, would, you know, we will be investing in the infrastructure which uh, to to support a, a a digital economy, a green economy, and a digit greener, fairer digital economy across our country, and not just in certain um, hotspots. Okay, <laughs> I have to go now, but that was a great discussion. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Chief. James. Um, yeah, a couple of reflections. I mean, really um, important questions. Um, on the point about equity, I think, I think this is a really fundamental issue when it comes to um, particularly the question of how we use algorithms. Ethan, you meant touched on this briefly, but the, um, we've done some work on um, discriminatory pricing in my day job and the question of um, the way in which uh, the algorithms used by insurance companies end up in people paying more if they live in, um, paying less if they live in predominantly white areas than if they live in areas where more people of colour live. Um, and there's something quite inherently problematic about some of these technologies where you're, in essence, training the algorithm using historic data sets and those data sets themselves have internalized systemic discrimination that is in that has arisen from from the history of different practices um, and insurance it's a really um, it's a very good example of that where you know insurance companies defenses they might be higher crime in uh, black areas or there might be uh, 
fewer car mechanics available, and so it's legitimate to charge people more for their car insurance in those areas. Um, that still seems to me deeply problematic, and it, if anything, makes, um, if you like, the sort of history of systemic discrimination more sticky, because it's suddenly almost encoded in the data that we then use to train the algorithm that then decides the prices people pay, people's access to credit, for example. Um, so that I, I don't think we've got our heads around that yet, actually. Um, I don't know, my, my instinct is that actually um, the Equality Act is very powerful legislation and actually could be leveraged and could be used to speak to that problem. Um, but whether or not we've yet kind of you know, used it to that end or really worked through how you would use the Equality Act to think through the requirements you place on companies in terms of their use of algorithms. Um, I'm not so sure, sure. And actually, when you speak to insurance companies, I mean, they don't know. They don't know their legal responsibilities in this space. They just don't understand what they're currently legally responsible for. Um, and then the other point I was going to touch on very briefly was um, the point about communities left behind. I think this is a really important one. And um, I mentioned in, my, um, in the essay with JRF the point that at most of the gains of technological innovation, or technological progress, come from uh, what I call catch-up, um, catch-up change, which is the point that most of the economy, most of society operates way behind the frontier of what's already possible. And so although in most of these debates we sort of end up talking about the frontier because that's the sexy stuff and that's the, that's the exciting stuff and we talk about AI and, and the kind of frontier technologies, really most of the gains as of now, if you like, are about just saying um, communities that don't currently have access to the internet, um, businesses that don't currently use even the most basic <coughs> kind of current frontier of technology, um, how do we spread those gains more widely? And so it, for me, it's much more about, um, it's sort of less in a way about Silicon Valley and um, whatever the old street one's called, Silicon Roundabout? Yeah. <laughs> that hasn't quite stuck. Um, well, Silicon Roundabout. Silicon Roundabout. <laughs> um, it's more about, you know, when you walk into your local corner shop, are they using the latest technologies to run their business? Um, and that's, that's a big deal, and we've done a bad job of that. I mean, not just in Britain, but across the kind of developed world to say, how do you diffuse these practices and technologies more widely? I'm trying not to say levelling up so that more of the economy and more of society can, can participate. Thanks, James. Jenny? Um, yeah, so you, let's talk about the equalities piece first. I think that one of the things to recognise here is that uh, our data protection actually needs to support all of our rights, not just our privacy rights. And, yeah. and I think there's been a... Um, uh, a lack of focus on that, that we know now that the types of uses of data, big data, AI in particular, mean that there are collective impacts, which include impacts on equality, they include impacts on our sense of democracy, um, they include impacts on our economies, right? We know that there are those kinds of impacts as well. We need to have those recognised in the ways in which we think about that uh, organisations that are using data think about what their impacts are. So they're not just focusing on privacy, they're focusing on that broader kind of set of impacts. Um, and um, the specific point that Natalie was making around, um, around collection of equalities data, I think that there should just be uh, mandatory transparency for certain algorithms, and particularly the high-stakes ones that, that Heaton was talking about, um, about their equalities impact as part of what they do. And that requires collection of that data, but it, it requires it because it's going to give that, that broader sense of, of what is actually happening with those algorithms and therefore something that we can do about it. Um, so, so yeah, we need to recognise those collective impacts. That needs to be in legislation around data protection. And we need to have more transparency around those algorithmic impact on equalities. On the... Um, uh, on the kind of being left behind, both from an internet access point of view, but also just generally access to technology point of view, I think we need to recognise that not everybody will be connected, that it is unequal, that it will be unequal, and not think, well, while we can put lots and lots of effort into 
broadband and 5G and, and access to technology, that's not going to solve it for everybody, right? Um, so we need to design around that. We need to think about where the enablers are, where the intermediaries are, the role of public libraries, for example, the role of youth workers in connecting to, to youth. And we need to manage the transition from where we are now towards something that is more connected, but never think that it's going to be all the way there. I think designing as if it is, is, is uh, means that we will leave behind those people behind even more right um, and then the final thing around uh, the use of digital tools to listen to young people um, Heaton talked about the kind of large citizen jury style um, kind of debates around, around um, and, and mentioned you know those are really expensive big kinds of efforts we need to be experimenting a lot more with different forms of participation, ones that are lighter weight, ones that can be adopted more easily, that are more responsive, that are more agile, as well as using those kinds of big participatory studies. Different forms of participation are useful in different places and ways and for different kinds of questions. So we need to be experimenting with the ones that are going to work for the really uh, narrow operational kinds of decisions as well as the big picture kind of broad, broad brush principles kind of uh, approaches. And that's one of the things that we're really focusing on in my organisation. Thanks, Jenny. Do you want to take another round of questions? Because I think we've done these ones. I'll start with you next yeah. and go the other way down. So next round of questions, do you wait for the mic? Two there and then one there. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, Josh Simons, I um, wrote a book called Algorithm for the People, which is about tech regulation um, based on my PhD. Great discussion. Um, I want to push a little bit more on um, labor policy since we are at Labor Conference. Um, just to quickly underscore one thing about the Equality Act that, that James said, um, one of the great things about the Act is it creates the basis for positive duties rather than simply negative ones. Mm -hmm. And in a world where you're dealing with data that embeds inequality, anything that's simply a negative duty won't cut it because you're going to predict stuff based on those things. And so that thinking about how to spread positive duties, structure them, oversee them, and so on, I think is really the sort of cutting edge of of the next step with the act in a way um it's also the last big labor act so we should talk about it more in labor spaces mm. um but so labor gets into power in 2024 just about it's got a tiny majority we've got one maybe two budgets um we're going to have to think really brutally about priorities we might have one bill related to technology and governance that we can sort of plan for um, we've all talked about technology being a choice, not having enough attention on design and power and building technology and so on, and the need for a sort of basic legislative framework for that. What is your, could you just describe in sort of 20 seconds how you would characterize that one Labour bill that you think should be passed within the first 18 months of the next Labour administration, assuming there is one, that would do that? Brilliant. Thanks. I... Hello. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Kevin Keith, uh, chair of the Open Government Network, but I've also written a little bit on, on, on this subject in particular. I just wanted to read out a quote from Jane Jacobs, who's a, who's a famous urbanist, who used to say, first comes the image, then the machinery is adapted to actually how we achieve that image. And it strikes me, Jenny, listening to you in particular, you didn't even need to mention data or tech. You, this could have been a, a debate about democracy. Um, but who defines that? Who comes up with that image that we're headed towards? How do we define that image? And I suppose the second part, it's another quote, I don't know actually who said it, about the future being here, it's just not equally distributed. So if you look at countries like Singapore, if you look at you know, uh, Korea, there are other places who are using technology in a very direct way. Um, but again, it comes around, you look, if you look at China and how they're using technology, but it, again, it comes back to that question, who defines that image? Where are we headed towards? And we've got a question there as well. Thanks. Um, hello. Uh, my name's Grace Barnett. I work for Unlock Democracy. Um, so James drew the parallel between uh, the Industrial Revolution and the Digital Revolution now. Um, obviously, democracy at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution looked very different to how it did at the end. And I think most people would agree that that was a good thing. Um, do the panel see a, a sort of similar tra trajectory happening through the digital revolution, or are we feeling a bit more pessimistic about democracy in, uh, in this context? Fantastic, some great questions. Peter? Yeah, thanks. Uh, really big questions there. Um, 
on democracy, in some ways, I think it's bound up with much bigger issues than digital, but digital does. I think this is true of so many things, right? Depending on the power dynamic, depending on the design and who designs, you could use this to actually enable new forms of democratic participation or shut them down. Let, let's see you know, how pessimistic or optimistic any of us feeling. I mean, but, but there are opportunities, and I think uh, the, the sorts of things Jenny was talking about, bigger forms of mass deliberation. Uh, I'm an interesting question, how you get the tech bros to focus on that rather than on optimising you know, what colour your font is so that you click through on this rather than on that. As well. that, that I mean, there's, there's a kind of incentives question there, I think. Um, I mean, I think the key, your, your point about who designs is a really important one. And again, it comes back to James's point that this isn't really about tech, this is about society. So, which is why, I mean, even if this were about digital society, it would be too short a session, but actually we're trying to cover absolutely everything. So then it becomes impossible. Um, and then I, I sort of dodge your question about one bill, but only because I did set up my position at the start, which is there are a whole series of discrete problems. So actually it's for every regulator to say, what is this going to need in my space? So again, I come back to automated vehicles is quite different to what the NHS should be doing. But if, if uh, and the big problem is actually our politicians and probably a lot of civil servants haven't really got their heads around any of this. And therefore then, then you move towards the, oh, well, let's do the one big bill, which will sort this all out. And that just can't be done. Um, okay, I, I will I will take a stab at a one <laughs> sort it out. No, um, I I agree with uh, Heaton's point generally. But if I was forced to um, uh, pick something, then I would I, I would say that empowering the communities who are affected by the use of data and AI is going to be the thing that then enables us to move to the better state that that we want to to get to. Um, and that means not just a kind of uh, new um, uh, new approach to data protection for data subjects. That is properly empowering the people who are the providers on digital platforms as well. So the Uber drivers, like I say, the content creators, um, uh, the, the people who are selling goods through these kinds of platforms as well. That they need to have a stake about, that they need to have a powerful say about how those platforms work in just the same as we as um, as consumers of those goods need to have a, a, a stay in how those work and in just the same way as the workers in within those digital platforms need to have a say about how it works um, and uh, I think that that kind of answers the point that you are asking about where democracy, right? We have a, a, a big legitimacy gap, I think, in the use of data and digital technologies. People do not feel that the choices that are being made are being made in their best interests. Um, and, and the way that we fill those legitimacy gaps is through democracy, is by putting people in control. So, so uh, finding the ways to enhance democracy in order to get the, the democratic decisions being made at a much more granular level, in fact, around uh, around the use of data and AI, I think, is a, a key thing to do. Um, and uh, as far as like the the image for the future and who defines it, this is political, right? This is this is where it gets it gets defined. It's it's in political parties arguing over the 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 image that they want, the vision that they want for the future. Now, I would advocate that that Labour's vision should be one that has that kind of collective empowerment at every single level because that seems to speak to Labour's values. Um, but you know, this needs to be on the table as part of the debate that we have in the next general election. Thanks. Um, yeah, big questions again. Um, I think the one bill. Um, I think if I had to, I would go something in the competition space. I do think this, the fundamental um, challenge of these, the enormous power of big tech platforms that are still governed within the old regime of basically kind of 19th century company law. And so you get just these, um, it's just, a, it's, a, it's a classification, it's just a mistake of classification. They're not, these companies are making decisions that have far reaching consequences for democracy, for society, for other people's businesses. Um, and they have no responsibilities enshrined in law, and they're sort of under a bit of pressure, making it up as they go along. And I, 
and I, I, I talk in the actually in the latest um, in the JRF essay about um, the idea of um, should we have a series of uh, platform acts similar in fashion to the Factory Act in the sense of um, giving us a vehicle to have that kind of big public debate about um, what are these things called platforms and what responsibilities do we should we put on them, um, and it, it's not it's not about breaking them up. You know, um, it, you know, I have this phrase in, in end state that it's um, you don't break them up, you should open them up. And I think a lot of what would be in that bill would be about um, what would it look like to open up these platforms so that they're not these kind of um, private enclaves where all of the data is their data. You know, it's not their data, it's our data, it's a public good, the data they collect, where they're forced to be interoperable, for example, with other, with other platforms, because again, they're building these sort of private walled estates so that when you're in Facebook you can't speak to your friends in other platforms and of course that's a huge benefit to Facebook and it entrenches their monopoly. So, so I do think there's um, something quite profound and radical we could do in that space, much of which would be really about giving the CMA and other organisations the power to do those things. So I don't think you can you know, do all of that through a bill if you like, but you could. I think probably a lot of that does need some kind of primary legislation to say these things are new and different to anything we've seen before, and they sort they should have new responsibilities. Um, and if I was allowed a secret second, I would um, a sneaky second. <laughs> I would. Um, I think there's something fascinating about, um, strangely, about adult schools. I just think if, we, if there was one game-changing investment we could make, or the next Labour government could make, it would be a sort of um, GI Bill-style game-changing investment in skills, in digital skills. It's just a crazy situation that we have millions of people stuck in low-paid jobs at low productivity, and then we've got a massive skills shortage where people are paid huge wage premiums to become coders, and that we should just, I think, put vast amounts of public money behind addressing that problem, much like America did after the war with the um, GI Bill. Um, some very quick thoughts on the other question. So, um, uh, I really love the, the question about who defines the image or who defines the future, and I think. Um, there's some really interesting debates about imagination at the moment and this question of um, one of the biggest problems being that we're struggling to imagine how good things could be in a funny way, um, which sounds a bit counterintuitive in the current kind of, given the vibe of current politics, but um, I do think a lot of this is a failure of imagination as much as anything else. So kind of how do we unlock that ability to imagine what the future could look like so that it's not just imagined by the tech bros would be... Nice, and then um, democracy. Um, so I totally agree with Jenny's point about um, experimenting with different deliberative mechanisms because we, we really need, I think, to sort of try some stuff out in terms of how do you have conversations about these big choices that we face. Um, but the, the, the radical idea and the sort of maddest idea in my book is um, giving kids the vote, essentially. So in terms of kind of what's the analogy with the 19th century expansion of the franchise. I do think um, there's a sort of a currently fringe debate, but um, there is a kind of quite an interesting debate, I think, about um, you know, is it a coincidence that we have this retrograde politics that is struggling to respond, to adapt to the future, when no one under the age of 18 has got any say or any weight in the decisions that we make? Um, and that seems to be not a coincidence. And it's not a coincidence that a lot of the climate change debate is starting to be dominated by children. So, I mean, should we find some way of giving them some weight in the decisions that we make about the future, given that it is their future, after all. That's my most radical proposition. <laughs> it's a pretty radical one. Thank you. I'm going to ask a very cheeky, quick final question. Also, if you've got any final thoughts that you want to leave us with, and then again, I'll start with Heaton and move the other way down the panel. We are thinking about the Labour Party. We're thinking about the next election. As Labour develops its next manifesto, when it comes to the sorts of issues we've thought about today, what should they? What should Labour be reading? Who should they be listening to? Where are the big ideas um, beyond what we've talked about today that they should be thinking about? Nice easy one to it's finish with. To, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can answer a different question, which is um, that I think Labour's got a real opportunity now to position itself with a narrative around uh, growth, technology, digital for the public good. Uh, so, in a way, I think, given what's just happened with the current government, they've exposed quite a big space, which I think would create <coughs> quite a modern, sort of forward-looking, but positive narrative. Uh, and I mean, I think there's lots of people to read, including 
James and everyone in this room has probably written books, you know, all about it. So, yeah. Thanks. Um, I, I would highlight from a data uh, kind of a data governance perspective, particularly the racialized and marginalized uh, women who are really excellent on the, these kinds of topics. So I would highlight the book Data Justice by Catherine Ignacio. Um, I would highlight uh, and I would highlight the um, effort Who Writes the Rules Online, which has a, um, a set of really smart uh, black policy thinkers behind it. Great recommendations. Um, I would. I think it's very interesting to read um, his, to read history because I think it does oddly, at least, always leave me feeling optimistic. Actually, when you sort of zoom out a bit from the day to day. Um, so, I, and there's some very interesting um, books from the sort of 60s and 70s when people were starting to grapple with what it would look like to live in a high technology society, and it's quite. They can be quite. Um, thought-provoking about the ways in which we thought things might go wrong um, and the ways in which things have gone wrong. Um, and so I would dip back into some of that literature. And also, the other thing I think is quite nice to read is some of the um, more utopian historical literature because I think we have... There's something funny about the technocratic moment that we're in that we've sort of lost this ability to imagine and to think big about the future. Um, and we, this, I think, speaks to, to me... Our, our tendency to respond to all this stuff with sort of tweaks and incrementalism and um, that kind of response. And I think sometimes it can be useful just to sort of zoom out a bit and read a bit of the sort of um, the old utopian literature. So, plus it just cheers you up. <laughs> Thanks, James. Um, a couple of very quick parish notices before I let you leave. Um, this is one of 15 uh, IFG events at conference this week. We're also at the Conservative Conference, for those of you that are coming to that. Um, the next one, uh, you can get a second round of chi. Uh, it's happening at midday over on Concourse 2. How can governments support innovation to boost growth and reduce regional inequality? And again, all of the details in the flyers around the room and on the IFG website. Um, all that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our wonderful audience, with some brilliant questions. Second, to our our supporters uh, and sponsors for this event, Joseph Rowntree Foundation. Thank you very much indeed to them. And finally, uh, please do join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic panellists. Thank you very much.